You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on the High Holy Days in conjunction with our ministry, Christianity is Jewish, presented by Justin Hibbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. One of the ministries that we have here is called Christianity is Jewish. And what uh, the reason why we say Christianity is Jewish, actually what we're not saying when we say Christianity is Jewish, is we're not saying that you have to be Jewish in order to be a Christian. You don't have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. That was the, what the first uh, Council of Jerusalem uh, said, and we read about that in the books of, book of Acts. You don't have to be kosher to be a Christian. Thank God, because I love my bacon. I really do. <laughs> and I might have eaten some on one of the holy days here. Um, you don't have to observe the Jewish festivals in order to be a Christian. You don't have to wear a yarmulke in order to be a Christian or observe anything like that. But the reason why we do this is sort of like in studying literature. Uh, I was a, I, One of my majors in college was literature, and, and as we studied a piece of literature, we looked at the author's life and the context surrounding the author's life because when we look at the author's life, we get a little glimpse of what they were going through and perhaps why they were writing what they were writing at the time. It, it, it gives us a little bit more uh, something to look at. And it also reduces the risk of us uh, misinterpreting what the author was trying to say. So in the same way, when we look at Christianity, we can look at its context, and its context of Christianity is Judaism. Christianity has only been around for about 2,000 years. For about four, five, 6,000 years before that, you have God working in the Jewish people, beginning with calling uh, Abraham from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to inherit the land of Israel. You have Jacob, Isaac, Jacob, and then the 12 tribes of Israel, right? From there you have Moses, and you have Joshua and Aaron, and Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land of Israel, of Canaan. And then from there you have the judges who were Jewish, and the kings like Saul and David and Solomon who were Jewish, and the kings that went after them that were Jewish, and the prophets that were Jewish, and Jesus who was Jewish, who grew up in a Jewish land speaking a little bit of Hebrew, probably learning the Hebrew scriptures as well as Aramaic, perhaps even a little bit of Greek. And his disciples were Jewish. And the writers of the New Testament were Jewish. So when we look at scripture, it's got this rich context of Judaism. Men who wrote these scriptures celebrated things like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot and Passover and Pentecost. This was the culture. And so when we look at when we look at the context of Christianity, we get an appreciation for what God has done, not only through Jesus, but before that, what he was weaving throughout history. I'm teaching a creative writing class this semester. I love it. I, I love teaching this creative writing class because, once again, I get a chance to write. That was another major of mine was, was writing. And I love writing, and I love poetry. And I love poetry. I love looking at the poets and looking at how they intertwine and weave words and play with words and paint with words and how they start off with one word and they play on words and they use sounds to reiterate a theme throughout the poem so that when they start the poem and then they end the poem, you realize it's still the same poem by the words that they've used and the alliteration that they've used and the assonance and the consonants and all of that stuff that weaves together to make this beautiful poem. It's much more than words rhyming at the end of lines. There's lots of things that make poetry, meter and rhythm and things like that. So when we look at Christianity, and I can't help but see a creative God 
And I hope that when we, when we look at these high holy days, starting with Rosh Hashanah, even though Rosh Hashanah was kind of a week ago, and next week we'll look at Yom Kippur, even though that was yesterday, and Sukkot, uh, which, which is, uh, a week from now, I believe, we will, um, we, I, I hope that you get the picture of a creative God, a God who weaves symbols and ideas throughout history, giving us clues and telling us all about just how masterful he is. Rosh Hashanah is the celebration of God as creator. The Jewish people believe that on Rosh Hashanah was when God created Adam and Eve. But another thing that we've talked, and I mentioned this, uh, I think, last week during communion, is that it also looks at uh, Rosh Hashanah as the celebration of God intervening in the life of Isaac on Mount Moriah, sparing his life from his father Abraham, who was ready to offer him up as a sacrifice. We're going to read about that story. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. We begin the story in Genesis chapter 18 before Isaac is born, about a year before Isaac's born. It says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. And Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance to his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. We read about Abraham offering um, these three visitors, God and two others with him, food to eat, and they oblige and stay with him. And in verse 8 we read, While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. Now, mind you, at this point they had not even, he'd never mentioned that he had a wife. So here they said, Where is your wife Sarah? There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him, and Abraham and Sarah were already very old. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. It's such a weird passage. But anyways, <laughs> but, but what's so neat, if you remember, I spoke on Yeshua and the Torah back last Advent. And one of the things I said was that this was such a unique visit because we're told that, you know, uh, God says to Moses, nobody can see my face and live. But John tells us that nobody has seen the face of God except from the, for Jesus himself. Well, we're told that Jacob wrestled face to face with God. Here, Abraham has a visit from God himself in the flesh who eats with him. So how do we reconcile this idea that nobody's seen the face of God and yet these men have seen the face of God? It's that they have seen the second person of the Trinity. We call this a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. Here is the second person of the Trinity, God himself, Jesus, in the flesh or in some form, there appearing before Abraham, before heralding the birth of Isaac. Now we know as the, as these three go on, um, on their way they go to a so, towards Sodom and Gomorrah. The two that are with God are angels that go to rescue Lot and his family, but Abraham and God stay behind to negotiate the, the sparing of Sodom and Gomorrah. But let's turn, if you have your Bibles, to Genesis chapter 22. 
Because we read about this event that is commemorated with Rosh Hashanah. Fix my yarmulke here. I had to ask my wife for a bobby pin. (laughs) It's a weird thing to ask for. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So God here says, you, your son, your only son. Well, Abraham has another son. He has Ishmael through Hagar and who he's kicked out of the house. So Ishmael and Hagar are gone. But God says, take your son, your only son, referring to Isaac. And early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So he says, look, we're coming back to you, right? Abraham understood something. He he understood if God came and told me personally in the flesh that I was going to have a son, it seems odd that God would take him away after he's given all these promises. So he understood, he had faith that God was either going to intervene in some way or perhaps God would resurrect Isaac after the fact. We continue reading in verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac, who was very bright, spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, depending on how you read this in Hebrew, it actually has kind of two meanings. Um, one is is that, yes, God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. The other way that, that it could be read because of the syntax in Hebrew is that it could be that God will provide himself as the lamb. We continue reading that when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac. I mean, what a a, a sobering moment that must have been. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. There's a second time that he uses your son, your only son. The other thing, too, is notice that it says the angel of the Lord. Well, if, again, in, in the Yeshua and the Torah series, we talked about the meaning of the angel of the Lord. Whenever it talks about, sometimes when it says the angel of the Lord, it uses it interchangeably with the Lord himself. And we see that here in this passage. So, the, the word angel, by the way, doesn't mean winged creature. It just means messenger. So here the Lord not only heralds, tells Abraham that he will have a son, the Lord himself intervenes in saving Isaac. So he says to Abraham, look up. Uh, so Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. So there's the interchange. That because you have done this and have not withheld your son, 
your only son, right? That's the third time. I've learned that whenever God repeats something, he usually means something, right? When he, he usually means something serious. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So here God intervenes in this tremendous, intense moment, the climax of this story. And instead of Abraham laying a hand on Isaac and slaying his son, God draws his attention to a thicket, to a bush, with a ram caught by its horns. And so Rosh Hashanah is known as the Feast of Trumpets. And it's a day when the Jewish people blow the trumpets. And the trumpet is not a brass instrument in this case. case It is a ram's horn, a shofar. I always say that there's five reasons for the Jewish feast. Five reasons. And we'll look at these five reasons today. One of them is to remember a historical event. So God is really big on remembering history. That's what he says to the Israelites when he brings them out of the land of Egypt. He says, every year from now on, you are to celebrate the Passover. You need to remember this event. Remember that I have redeemed you with an outstretched hand. Remember that I have taken you the least of the world, from the slavery and and bondage of Egypt and have given you freedom. When when Israel crosses the Jordan River, they set up 12 stones, right? And then Joshua says, it's so that when your children ask, what do these stones mean? You can tell them that this is where God brought Israel out of the wilderness, out of 40 years of wandering into the promised land. So not only is it to remember historical event, but it's also to bring together the nation of Israel. There's a double shofar. That's when you get really good. You can play the double shofar, right? Um, so for Israel, and this is really important, there are seven feast days that are prescribed in the Bible, and then there are more that are added through tradition, like Hanukkah, for example. Three of those feast days are called pilgrimage feast days, feasts of gathering. So it's very common that it, that Israel, that the Jewish people will gather together in Jerusalem for Sukkot, which, by the way, that's a sukkah. That's not a photo booth, but you're welcome to um, go in there and take photos if you'd like. But that's that's for the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Someone was like, is that a photo booth in there? I'm like, have at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're renting it out, you know, in the, during Sukkot if you would like. It's really comfortable, I swear. So, um, anyways, it's, it's to bring together the nation of Israel. So, Sukkot, um, Passover is another celebration. And Pentecost, and the Lord uses these festivals, these gathering festivals, to reveal something about the Messiah as well. And those are those are really important. It was interesting because I was traveling one uh, one time during the festival of Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, and there were a lot of Orthodox Jewish people traveling. You could tell; I mean, they were wearing the the typical Orthodox Jewish garb, and they were carrying the lulav, um, that the the flower that's used for, or the branch that's used for waving during the Feast of Tabernacles. And they were probably, tra- not tra- probably not traveling to Israel. They were probably traveling home to spend time with their families. But it's the Feast of Gathering. So it brings together Israel, just like our celebrations bring our culture together as well. How many of you have been to a Muslim country before? Okay. Five times a day, what can't you get away from? <laughs> That's right, the call to prayer. It is pervasive, isn't it? It is loud. I was talking, uh, last spring we went to, uh, Turkey 
And before we went, I was talking to a, a friend of mine, someone who used to attend here years and years ago before he moved to North Carolina. And he was saying that, um, he was saying that his first time in Istanbul, he stayed at this hotel room and there was a box in, above his bed. He didn't know what that box was. Well, at 6 a.m., he learned what that box was. He said, there was this loud blaring sound and he said, I jumped out of bed and ran into the hallway and was screaming like, what's going on? What's going on? And, and his, and his friends are people who are, who are working with him and traveling with him were like, relax, it's just the morning call to prayer. Well, I mean, he had to get used to that. I don't think hotels have those boxes anymore. But um, it, it, it's pretty loud. It's loud, and this is a video we took in Turkey. I call this the dueling mosques because you have the dueling banjos, the dueling mosque. You had two mosques kind of right across the way, and they're everywhere over there. Um, but it was kind of neat to hear, like, the kind of call and response. So it was pretty loud. And when when we were in Bergama, uh, near you know in the ancient city of Pergamum, there was a um, we were walking back to our room. It was nine o'clock at night. It was really dark. And as we're walking home, it was like having eight TVs on on all different channels, and it was just surround sound of craziness. And all of these, I mean, because they're not saying the same thing at the same time. So it was just so loud. And we thought to ourselves. 6 a.m. is going to come really early tomorrow. Sure enough, those walls did not have enough insulation, that's for sure. But five times a day, this is what the, this is what Muslims do. And for the Jewish people, they, it's a little different. They have the shofar blow on, on Rosh Hashanah. But the shofar sound, the way that they blow it is very unique. It is, it's always the same. There's a rhythm to it, a cadence to it. And I'll let you hear what that sounds like. That's the sound of the shofar in all of its beauty, right? The the shofar blast also, and these festivals, not only is to put, point out a historic event, to remember something historically, it's not only to bring together the nation of Israel, especially you hear that, you know it's Rosh Hashanah, the call of the new year, but it's also to point people to God, that they would learn and worship Him. You saw in the video of the mosques, you saw a lot of people just walking around. Well, even in a country that's, what, 99.9% Muslim, and I'm, I'm sure if you ask them on the street what your religion is, they would say Muslim. They're just walking about, ignoring the call to, call to prayer. In the same way, there are many Jews who ignore the fact that what Rosh Hashanah is for and what the Jewish festivals are for is to call the people to attention to God. In the same way as Christians, we you know we attend church every Sunday. And it's so easy for us to just kind of go through the motions and forget, you know, what about communion? When we're celebrating communion, kind of forget what it's all about. And when we do, we become complacent. We're just going through the motions. And so this is always these festivals, these things that we do to remember and they symbolize things about God and what he's done for us. They are always for us to remember, to call our attention to these things. So not only, though, is it to remember historical event, to bring together the nation of Israel, to bring point people and their attention to God. But all of these feasts point to Jesus the Messiah. Because what Jesus, what God was predominantly um, 
What he wanted them to realize was he wanted them to recognize the Messiah when the Messiah came. So that they could see this man and they could say, wait, he fits this, he fits that, look how he fulfills this, how he fulfills the law, look how he fulfills the prophets, look at how he's doing everything that God said he would do, everything that he would be, and he is indeed the Messiah. What God was doing in creating these feast days, I believe, was creating markers. Markers that would point people's attention to Jesus himself. He was weaving like a poet, weaving things through history, so that he, so that Abraham would only have one son, his only son, Isaac. Because God says, I have only one begotten son, Jesus. And when, when Abraham goes to sacrifice him and says things like, uh, God will provide himself as the lamb. Well, he's speaking prophetically. Because then God would provide the ram, but then God would provide the ultimate lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Rosh Hashanah and all the Jewish festivals follow the lunar calendar. The, the Jewish calendar is based on the lunar calendar. So, for example, this year is actually the earliest that Rosh Hashanah could occur in our calendar, September 5th, and I think it'll happen again in like 2044 or something like that. So it's actually the earliest. And in fact, Hanukkah is so early this year, it falls on Thanksgiving Day. It's the first day of Hanukkah. So, um, uh, but sometimes it extends out into Christmas time. Sometimes we're celebrating the High Holy Days closer to October. But it all, it's all based on the lunar calendar. And there's something else that's interesting, you know, I, and I've showed this parts of this video before. I'll show it again today, um, a clip of this. But there's this fantastic documentary called The Star of Bethlehem. And it's about this guy, um, I believe his name's Rick Larson. He's a, he's an attorney. And he just, a Christian guy who wanted to explore what the star of Bethlehem was. So he began doing all of this research, trying to figure out what it was, what moves this way and that way to bring, um, the, the, the Magi to Israel, to Jerusalem, and then to Bethlehem, and to see this child. What, what does that? And so he began doing all of this research, and he found uh, some pretty convincing, um, stuff. In, in the in the astronomy in the in the cycles of stars and moons and planets and how they move about in some fantastic ways and it's brilliant it's on YouTube if you get the chance to watch it just put in the Star of Bethlehem it's a it's about an hour documentary it's really neat but this is a clip from the end of the documentary he talks about Jesus's death his crucifixion take a look at this it is pretty compelling. The level of structure that God created in the universe. If you, if you studied astronomy, you know that things move in cycles and you know that there's a complexity to them. And, and the idea of constellations is not a new thing. It's, it's, Job even talks about, and that's considered the oldest book of the Bible. And, and the fact that these things move about the way they move and the structure that it takes for the time it takes lights to appear here on earth from the stars. I mean, it's, it's so fascinating to think that God even in creation, created a structure that would, that would hail the coming and the passing of Jesus as the Messiah is unbelievable. The amount of detail that would have taken a creative God who started with creation to reveal to us the cross. The other thing too, though, is I believe that these are markers. Markers not only for the coming and the passing of Jesus, because any, and also in that video, I should mention that he talks about Rosh Hashanah, and it talks about something that happened in connection with Jesus, either his conception or his birth occurring on Rosh Hashanah, 
which is interesting to think about as well. But also, I believe that all of these are markers for the end times. And the Jewish people as well will, will, will confirm that to you, that these high holy days have a very big connection with end times. Paul writes to us in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. He writes this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Could it be that perhaps this trumpet call that he talks about is the shofar blast? is coordinated with Rosh Hashanah. I don't know. I'm not really into predicting what time, when the rapture will occur. But I do know this. Those seven festivals played a very important role in hailing the coming of Jesus. And we're going to look at how they were fulfilled. We're going to even look at in Revelation when we talk about the Feast of Tabernacles and see how they're fulfilled in Revelation. But could it be, again, a connection with what God is doing, pointing us to Jesus, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. When Paul tells us about the Lord's Supper and celebrating the Lord's Supper, what does he say? He says, for whenever you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he come. So again, Paul is telling us that within the celebration of the Lord's Supper, originally from Passover, taken from Passover, what we're celebrating is not only remembering what God has done for us, but also looking ahead at Jesus' return. The Jewish people looked to the high holy days in the beginning of these days of awe, the three festivals here, back to back to back, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And they believe that this is the time in Rosh Hashanah that God is pronouncing judgment and whether or not their names are written in the Book of Life. That's what they believe. And so they'll, they'll say a blessing. They'll say, may your name be inscribed in the book of life. But we read about the book of life in Revelation 13, 8. It says, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship the beast. So this is during the time of the tribulation. And it says, those who worship the beast, those whose names are not written in the book of, of life of the lamb slain before the creation of the world. Before God even created the world, he had in mind the cross. He had in mind the great plan of salvation. And so we shouldn't be surprised to look at these Jewish symbols and see Jesus all throughout them, like a poet writing a poem. In fact, even when we look at the menorah, we look at that center candle, which is called the shamash, which is used to light every other candle. It's called the servant candle, shamash, the word for servant. And we think of Jesus' words when he said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when we look at that center candle and see the shamash, we think of Jesus, our Messiah, our Passover lamb. The Jewish people also celebrate, um, they eat apples dipped in honey. Sorry, I didn't bring those today. <laughs> um, but it's to remind them of kind of the, the harvest and the sweet new year that the Lord has provided. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here, and we're going to close this morning by saying a couple of Hebrew blessings. We'll say them in Hebrew first, and it's okay. You can mumble your way through it. We all do. And then we'll say it in English as well. And as you do this, I, w- I want you to think in mind, keep in mind that what we're praying here is we're praying again for the fulfillment of this. So let's say this together. Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Halom, Borei 
pre-Hyatts. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the tree. And you can think right on Jesus' words as he said this, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So just as we pray, God, give me a fruitful year. Make me fruitful. Well, how are we fruitful? We're we're fruitful by living in Jesus, by remaining in him. We'll say another blessing here. Yehi ratzon milfaneka Arunai Elohenu Velohei Avotenu Shet Hadesh Elenu Shana Tova Um Tuka. So the word Shana Tova, Happy New Year, right? May it be your will, Lord our God and God of our ancestors, that you renew for us a good and sweet year. So how do we have a good and sweet year? How do we, how do we produce fruit? How do we have our names written in the book of life? Well, that is all given to us. That is told to us. It is not through simply doing good works. It is not through magic. It is not through following prescriptions. It is by living in Jesus, by walking with him. When we abide in him, he remains in us. And we will produce fruit. So this year, I know it's not the new year for you. You don't think of this as being the new year. But maybe you can. Maybe every day can be a new start for you. But as you think about the year that's ahead, and for some of you this is a kind of a natural new year because you start the school year. And um, as you think about this new year, think, you know, there may be great things that will happen. There may be very troubling things that may that happen. Maybe some very difficult things. But let me just encourage you, remain in Jesus. Lean into Jesus as things get tougher, as things get better. Lean into him. He will produce the fruit in you. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.